Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. All of the stars aligned and I got to snag a quick interview with the man of the hour, San Francisco DA, Chessa Boudin. Chessa is the target of not one, but two recall campaigns. As of this episode's release on Wednesday, August 11th, I don't think the first recall effort will have gotten enough signatures, but he's not out of the woods just yet. The second recall signature push has its deadline in October. It was fascinating to get a lightning fast run through of his life and why he does the work he does. For instance, it sure seems to me that his fidelity to seeking justice for workers' wages can be traced back to young Chessa getting his allowance expropriated by his adopted parents. This is, who would have thought, Janelle, just a nobody on the internet with a microphone <laughs> will finally get to sit down with the, one of the men of the hour, uh, DA of San Francisco, uh, Chessa Boudin. How are you doing today, Chessa? I'm doing great, Janelle. Good to have you here and excited for the conversation I know we're going to have over the next hour. Lots to talk about. Right. Huh. My man. Uh, so much to talk about. Um, but before we get to the current moment, which obviously we will get to, uh, I'd like to go back because I think in addition to in addition to the maybe the most uh, immediate familiar familial story that people may uh, have of you. I remember listening to an interview a while back. Maybe it was a a year and a half ago, and you were kind of running down um, your lineage. And I would like for us to start that way in order to properly situate how how Achessa maybe comes to be. Because you're, from what I understand from that interview, and it was, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember the exact details. But f- from my vantage point, is you, you, like, when you came t- into being, like, you chose the family that you were born into uh, because of kind of the the history. I think that started with your grandparents. Um, so I think that's a fascinating way to kind of start us to understand like you and um, and how you are, why you are as you are. So so give us a little rundown of of the the Boudins, the family tree. <laughs> yeah, the family tree. The family tree. Well, going all the way back, you know, most of most of my grandparents came to the U.S. from Eastern Europe. They mm-hmm. fled um, oppression. Sure. At the hands of the the Russian Empire and, mm. and the Tsar, as Jews, they were being discriminated against. Yes. The pogroms, and um, the the Boudin family came into um, New York City mm-hmm. and. Several different ancestors ended up being lawyers. Ah. Um, so I'm not the first. No, <laughs> definitely no, no, not no. the first. One in a long line. Yeah. Right, that's right. And and actually, my great grandfather was a lawyer, or his maybe it was my great uncle. Mm-hmm. My grandfather grew up knowing he wanted to practice law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, went to City University of New York Law School, mm-hmm. and ultimately uh, was a founding partner of a law firm. Mm-hmm. That did a lot of political cases. Yeah, they represented people like Paul Robeson, yep. like Dr. Benjamin Spock. Hmm. Um, they represented governments like the Cuban government after the Cuban Revolution. Ah. So they were involved in a lot of uh, political work. They defended people in front of the House on Un-American Activities nice. Commission uh-huh. when um, the you know the, the height of McCarthyism when yep. when the labor, first Red Scare exactly yep. when when labor organizers and and Hollywood producers and you name it were being accused of being communist because they had certain political views mm. or different perspectives on social justice, political change, um, and that was an era when um, you know it was. It was a scary moment in American history, and those folks, people resisting the war in Vietnam, like Dr. Spock, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, folks who were were involved in a wide range of speech-related um, culture, speech-related resistance, mm-hmm. um, went to my grandfather and his law firm for, for legal aid. Uh-huh. And my grandfather ended up arguing 
and winning, not all, but many cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So he made a name for himself as someone who was willing to take on unpopular clients, someone who was willing to stand up for the little guy, mm -hmm. fight back against the government. How did um, you? How was that explained to you as a child growing up? When you're, you know, we all grow up learning about our family members, our ancestors, uh, recent or distant. How was that explained to you? Why that was so important for your your great grandfather and your grandfather? Why was the law the area to to plant oneself professionally and fight? I don't want to speak for them. I certainly never knew. I mean, I knew my grandfather, but he passed when I was nine years old. I mm -hmm. certainly never knew his father or his sure, uncle sure, sure, who, sure. who were in the law. Um, you know, I think the history, in some ways, for for any people who've been oppressed, whether you know African Americans in terms of the history of slavery, and whether it be you know Jews with the history of the Holocaust, and and pogroms. even before that, yeah. pogroms, right? Um, or you know, really any any people that has oppression and exclusion kind of built into their DNA. Mm -hmm coming to a country where there's a promise of the rule of law mm -hmm. and where there's a promise of democratic um, process is something that's really inspirational. Mm -hmm. And when you see ways in which the the government falls short of those ideals, uh. um, you, you know, there's a desire to push back. Mm -hmm. And the law is not the only way, but it's a very powerful way. It's a toolkit, sure. essentially, sure, for sure. figuring out how to hold the system to the high standard that that it, it claims uh. um, to to, to create for all of us, uh -huh. uh, you know, as members of a society, as, as citizens, as taxpayers, as residents. Sure. Um, and of course, we know it doesn't always, uh, especially in dark moments. <laughs> right, right. We know it doesn't. Right. <laughs> we know it doesn't. Yeah. We, you and I know. We're, we know. You know, I know. <laughs> Everybody right. listening knows. That's correct. And yet, how do we push it to, yeah. to, to kind of be closer to those ideals that, uh -huh. are, that you read about in your seventh grade civics right. book or That's whatnot, right? right? And, and right. the law is not the only way, but it's a powerful way That's if you use it the way that uh, my grandfather tried to, the way that I'm trying to. So uh, that, that's part of my history. I don't yeah. want to fast forward too much, but um, next generation, sure. my mom did not become a lawyer, thought about it, right. um, but her brother did, uh -huh. and her brother went a, a pretty different path mm -hmm. uh, politically. He, he was, for most of his career, a federal judge, mm. initially appointed by a very moderate uh, Republican president. Who? Nixon? No. Um, uh, Reagan? Bush one. Ah, Bush okay. one. Okay. Not Bush two. Do they not get along? Your mom and your brother says that, because that sounds like they're maybe very, very different. They're different people. They're very different they're people. Good. They do get along, though. They just, okay. you know, politics is not necessarily the main thing they talk about. <laughs> you know? I guess not. Right. I yeah, mean, okay. you know, my uncle's retired now. And, yeah. and again, he's, he, you know, he was a very different breed of federal judge and the kind that we saw Trump appoint or even uh -huh. uh, Bush to appoint. I uh -huh. mean, he was, he was always someone who was much more moderate uh -huh. than the kind of ideologues that sadly we've seen the courts get packed with in, in the last 10 years. Uh -huh. uh, that being said, he, yeah, he, he was a corporate lawyer. He was yeah. a government lawyer. Sure. He was a federal judge. Mm -hmm. Very different than my parents, which we'll talk about. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, polar opposite. Sure, sure, sure. Than, than <laughs> yeah. my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I was, I was lucky that I grew up with access to and exposed to lots of different ways to build a career, even a career in the law. Why do you say that? Because I think perspective is always a good thing. Tell me about what the perspective was. Explain to me how you had, how you came to varying perspectives. I can guess, but tell me. Sure. So I, like I said, my, my grandfather passed when I was nine. I was very close with him until ah, then. Okay. I remember going to his law firm, hmm. to his office, meeting with the other partners. Hmm. I'm still in touch with many of the lawyers. His firm still exists. Ah. Um, and the you know the experience of seeing someone who you you know you love and you look idolize, up to is, yeah. yeah you idolize in a certain sense I mean he was he spoiled my grandfather yeah, he spoiled yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah. to take me out and buy me ice cream when yeah, he wasn't supposed right. to buy me ice cream that's that kind right, of thing right, right? right. and uh, to see someone like that in their you know in their professional life also be kind of idolized by you know he was the the founding partner of yeah. a law firm yeah. and they you know so we would go to. Uh, events at the firm and people would look up to him and I could, you know, even as a kid, you hmm. could tell he was held in a certain kind of esteem. Yeah, sure. um, and similarly with my uncle, even though I knew from an early age that politically he was sort of very different mm. and had different views and had chosen a different path, mm -hmm. you walk into a federal courthouse and you watch him as the presiding judge. That's right. That's oh, respect. That's respect. Oh, yeah. All the lawyers. You, know, right. you got fancy corporate lawyers there. Yes, sir, Your Honor. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. Honor, if I could, may I be heard, please, Your Honor. <laughs> that's right. All that. So you, you sort of, even before I went to law school or understood all the details, yeah, yeah. there was this idea that he had built a really prestigious, successful career ah, for himself. That's right. Um, Doing a much more traditional thing, starting uh -huh. off as a you know he's a partner at Covington and Burling, which is a big big you know, yeah, firm, big firm yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I got to know and love my uncle, and sure. 
you know, build a relationship with him on a personal level. Yeah, and we, family. yeah, we talk, we, we talk about his cats and we, you know, talk about <laughs> swimming and we talk, <laughs> talk about, you know, where we like to get dinner and, that's we, right. you know, all the things yeah, where, where yeah, I should yeah, go to college. Right. He was there giving me advice, sure, which sure, college, sure. which law school. Yeah. So, uh, I guess the circle back to your question, you know, I was exposed to people, not just like my grandfather, a lot of other people yeah. like that. Yeah. My, my adoptive mother was the founder of the Children and Family Justice Center at Northwestern Law School, mm-hmm. a, a clinic that focused on providing free legal services to children accused of uh, crimes, delinquency mm-hmm. proceedings, mm-hmm. Uh, or also advocating for children in the context of family custody disputes, mm-hmm. really trying to reform a criminal justice system that, you know, st- from the ground, basically trying to attack what we call the school to prison pipeline. Gotcha. And um, she did that work for decades yeah. out of Chicago using the law using a really lifelong commitment to fighting against r- racial inequities mm-hmm. to fighting against white supremacy and um, you know finding ways to use the, the the tools of the law to do that there were dozens of people like her like mm-hmm. the lawyers who represented my other parents yeah. who were were movement lawyers so yeah. to speak yeah. Yeah. and that was something that I grew up with and I saw as one model for how to engage politically mm-hmm. and professionally with with the world around us. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Why did, why did, because it sounds like three, three types of different kind of legal perspectives are emerging in your childhood. You have one of your adopted mother who uh, is like an advocacy lawyer for, for youth. Uh, It sounds like you are familiar uh, or have familiarity with movement type lawyers who represented your biological parents. Um, we might get there, but we might not. Just go on Wikipedia, whatever. And then, then there's a, a more kind of a mainstream corporatist uh, view that you get vis-a-vis your uncle and maybe part of the work that your grandfather did. Why was why was one more attractive than the other as a child, or in your in your understanding growing up? Why do you think? Looking back, you know, as a child, I I always had people tell me I was going to be a lawyer. They always Why? say, well, Why did they say that? They, for one thing, I like to be right and I like to argue my so point. So you were a little like, pain in the ass. Yeah, definitely <laughs> had my moments. Hey, we all do. Let's be real. We all, we all do. <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. I'm, sure I'm, I'm sure you had your moments. No, your parents I still said, have my moments. Say, exactly. My parents exactly. hang their head every day. Uh-huh. Right. We all, you know, they're, they're proud on one day and the other day they say, I just don't know. <laughs> they say, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, it's a different orchard. <laughs> That's right. That's different right. orchard. That's right. Um, the, the, the people around me, a lot of people around me when I was a kid, when mm-hmm. I was going through, you know, High school, college would say, oh, he's going to be a lawyer. Huh. You know, it's in the blood. Yeah. He likes to argue. He likes to be right. He likes to, yeah, yeah. you know, engage intellectually and spar. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't committed to being a lawyer. That wasn't something that I knew from day one. I was open. I took five years between college and law school. I did other things. I experimented. But you I, didn't, that, that weight of expectation maybe didn't, that wasn't, that wasn't the biggest weight on you growing up before you got to college. Like you didn't, you didn't look out on the world and say, oh, these are my words. He's not cursing. It's me. Damn it! I gotta, I gotta be like grandpa. I gotta be like my uncle, or I have to, I have to, I have to be, I have to be something like ah. Val- I'm my words are getting messed up. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's how I thought about it. Really, from as as early as I can remember, I okay. thought about it like. I am acutely aware of my privilege as a white, cis, hetero male growing up in a middle class family. I had challenges. Sure, sure, sure. We'll we'll talk about those, you know. Um, But in some ways, it was those challenges that made me even more acutely aware of my privilege. And I think if I had grown up without having my biological parents in prison, then I might not have even been aware of the privilege. Uh, I might not have recognized uh, that actually, despite all the hardships, uh there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity to have a good education, to have a really stable family, to have, you know, food on the table every night. Again, to have the benefits that come with being white and male and hetero in our society. Um, And that awareness of those privileges combined with who my parents were and the kind of values that I think, you know, we, we grew up with in our community, in yeah. my school, in my nursery school, in my summer camp, all yeah. those, those values kind of led me to say, I have this privilege, I have these opportunities, I want to find a way mm-hmm. to build a life and a career that gives back, that does something for people who have fewer privileges and mm-hmm. opportunities than I do, okay. that makes the world a better place. And you think you were thinking about it in those terms coming up? Yeah, I mean, more or less. Why? Because of because of the environment I grew up in, because of the kinds of conversations we had, because of the kinds of people that in our broader community were held up as kind of role models, people who you know. But it wasn't just that. If we're being honest, you grew you grew up in a you grew up. I presume I don't I don't know, so you can tell me to just hush. But <laughs> I presume that there were there was a good bit of the community you grew up in, but wasn't there also a good bit just like nah. 
you know, I'm going to I'm going to do well by doing good for myself or whatever that term is that people. You know what I mean? Like definitely. I have. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of friends from high school or college who yeah. like their first party was let me get paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I know a lot of those people and they're some of them are good people who yeah. I, I'm still friends with. Sure, and, sure. you know, have, no love lost. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just a different it's sort of a different framework for, for the world. Yeah. And I don't it's not even for me. It's not even about like being judgmental of other people sure. or to each their own. Yeah, yeah. But I knew that for me, like m- making accumulating wealth yeah. was never going to be a path to happiness or to a meaningful life. Why for did me. you think that, though? Did you see the emptiness of that as a child? I did. I mean, I saw it. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, Say it. So I'm going to go back a little. Okay. A l- maybe not to when I was a child child, but my first trip that I took overseas yeah. by myself, I was 18 years old. Okay. And I went to Guatemala. And okay. I was staying in a rural town mm-hmm to basically learn Spanish, doing sure. a language immersion, live with a family, four hours a day, one-on-one language tutor, yeah. um, really just trying to learn Spanish right. properly. Right. And during that several months that I spent with that family, it, it was something that I kind of, you know, it was, it was profound for me. I, I went into it already with a life experience and with a worldview, sure. but I saw families living without running water. The mm-hmm. family I stayed with had no running water. No indoor plumbing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, no indoor plumbing, no running water. Sure. Um, Really, you know, electricity that would come and go, depending. Yep. Um, the The father worked in the in the jungle, basically harvesting this particular kind of plant that they used to get a product that they made chewing gum out of. And he was like hard manual labor sure. away from the family sure. for weeks at a time. And really, me staying with them and paying for mm-hmm. food is why there was stability in food every you. day. That was, you know, they While were on you the were edge. with you. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. They, the reason they took me in is because they needed to. I got you. And, it, you know, it wasn't like they were going to be able to send their daughter to the U.S. for an exchange. Sure. It wasn't that kind of sure, program, sure, sure. right? This was a family that was really living on the edge. And mm-hmm. I got to be part of their family for a few months mm-hmm. and see how they lived. And not just them, but also the entire community, that sure. that, that whole town, small town. Mm-hmm. The... The people there were, you know, in that town had had real challenges. Challenges of the kind that really no one I knew growing up experienced. Nobody didn't have running water in, right. in Chicago or, or New York City that that I that I knew that I yeah. came into contact yeah, yeah, yeah. with. I, I know there's unhoused people who didn't, yes, and, of but um, and seeing the ways in which people derived meaning and satisfaction and happiness and purpose uh-huh. from family relationships, from community, yes. was something that I'll never forget. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't matter that they didn't have a color TV, sure, or or that they or didn't cable. have a car or cable yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever that next consumer kind of benchmark of success yeah. and happiness is. And right. and it made me appreciate so many of the ways in which in dominant culture in this country and many countries, this this kind of myopic focus on consumption and, and on accumulation, yeah. materiality, yeah. is really disconnected from happiness. I see. Um, and that's something that, again, I grew up in a family where the priorities and the values really weren't focused on consumer. But you weren't, you didn't want for anything. No, I mean, I, not. There, there were times, like, we had those conversations as a kid where our parents would sit us down and say, financially, things are tough right now, right, right, right. and we got to cut, you know... We got to cut back on, you know, more water, less orange juice. Sure. Or, um, hey, we know you all have been t- to me and my brothers. We know you've been saving, yeah. and w- you know we need to borrow your savings I to pay you. the credit card bill. Really? We had those conversations. Huh. We had really? Those, yeah. We'll yeah. burn the debt. We did. Okay. Yeah. All right. And and uh, you know, it's one of the things I used to feel like I'm getting punished for being good at saving. <laughs> sure. I saved my allowance, <laughs> and now it's you know, but now they were being repoed. But they right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. they would pay me. You know, they would pay me back eventually. Sure, and, sure, sure, sure. Um, Sometimes we'd have to you know call and help from grandparents or uncles sure. to help 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 out. Uh-huh. And over the years, as my parents worked their way up professionally, we got more and more stable comfortable, and yeah. comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had those conversations, but it wasn't anything like the you know the family I live with in Guatemala. Sure. Nothing. A like world that. of difference. World of difference. Sure. And to see people who could find real value and meaning. Mm-hmm. in people yeah, was a kind of a reminder or maybe an affirmation of a lot of the values that I had grown up exposed to I even in a different material context. Okay. So that's, so that's that, what drove it home for you. Just like true happiness isn't necessarily just found in like accumulating things and having the ability to buy or do X, Y, Z. Like true happiness and fulfillment is our rich, fibrous relation, familial relationships, Community. communal relationships yeah. and like in the, and the love that is shared there. That's what really did it for you. For sure. And, okay. and look, let's be clear. I like a nice suit. Of course. You know, come on. I mean, you like a nice steak dinner. Yeah, all these things. Yeah, come whatever on. Whatever it may be. Yeah, right. We like those things. Like, yeah. But all the, and, and this is, you know, supported by massive amounts of empirical data. They've done studies all over the world. Sure. And, you know, after a certain kind of level, level, yeah. 
the marginal increase to happiness from Absolutely. increased wealth is is basically zero. Yeah, that's right? right. Once you're above, I don't know what the number is. I'm making this up, but $100,000 a year of income. Sure, sure, sure. Once you're Maslow's above that, hierarchy of needs. You can feed yourself, you can right. house yourself, you can go to the doctor, you can clothe yourself, yep. you can, you know, stay warm at night. Stay warm, yep. you know, occasionally stunt or whatever your thing is. Yep. Like, what else do you need? No, I get you. Right. I got you. Okay. So, so that's something I, you know, I was exposed <laughs> to, and it meant that when I went to law school, for example, uh-huh. years later, I started law school when I was like 28. Mm-hmm. I knew going into it, I wasn't going to law school to get a degree that would. You weren't going to white shoe yeah. route. I got you. That wasn't. There wasn't some. Again, no judgment. No, but yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't it, for you. It wasn't. It wasn't something that was going to be fulfilling to I me as a life career. I got you. And so I went into it thinking, well, how can I get skills that allow me to advocate for people who 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 really need help? I got you. And who might not get it otherwise? I got you. We're at the end of high school. What what was what was your thinking? Then or because did you go to Guatemala after high at the end of high school yep. or before? It was it was right between high school and college. Okay, that summer. Okay, at the end of high school, what were you thinking? What were the conversations at home and with our biological parents? Was it you know we gotta we gotta shoot for the stars? Granddad put away for you. Don't worry about call, just get to the get into the best school you can because you're going to blank. Like what was the conversation? Where were your what was your where was your head at? Yeah, at def- de- definitely going in going into high school. I'm gonna go back four years earlier. Okay. Going into high school, my my eighth grade year. Uh, my older brother, my adoptive older brother, yeah. uh, Zaid, mm-hmm. was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And I kind of watched as I was going to eighth grade, he was going to his senior year mm-hmm. as he went through the college application process. Yeah. And he was really smart, is smart. Yeah. You know, now he's the chair of his department at Northwestern. Whoa. Um, you know, is a professor, is, is a writer, does all kinds of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of being a great dad and a loving husband and all sure. that good stuff. And but a good he, brother. And a good brother, That's exactly. <laughs> um, I watched him go through this process as a you know rising senior in high school of applying to college. Mm-hmm. And I watched the ways in which certain decisions decisions he'd made freshman year, sophomore year, you know, to not participate in this club or to not do that sure. sport or to not take this one class that seriously mm-hmm. um, created stress and anxiety for him uh, in that application process. Sure. So I was really lucky to see that uh-huh. and learn and, from it and learn from uh-huh. it. So when I hit freshman year of high school, I was like, all right, game on. Yeah, we doing it. Right. I was like, I don't know where I want to go to college. I don't know what I want to do with right. my career, but I know that when I figure out what I want to do. Right. I want to be able to do it. That's right. So yeah. I got to put my back into it. That's right. That's so absurd that we do that to children. But anyway, go ahead. How well, did that? How did that understanding and that weight? How did that manifest itself? Were you just? Did you stop? Did you? Were you not able to like get a full night's rest all through high school because you in debate club, you on lacrosse team, you, 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 you know X Y Z. What was I, it? I did a whole laundry list of things. I'll huh. tell you. I didn't do debate or uh, or lacrosse, but I did the similar things. I did model United Nations. There I did uh, chess club. I did um, uh, swimming and baseball and cross country and soccer and I did huh. uh, a whole bunch of other activities. Were you having fun when you were doing these things or were you anxious? No, I had fun. I, I had fun. I feel okay. like I was that bridge generation where I didn't I didn't really stress about that stuff at all in, you know, sixth you, grade, seventh really? grade, eighth grade. Okay, okay. And then in high school I was like, all right, I gotta focus. Yeah. But I love people. I'm I'm a people person. Mm -hmm. I'm outgoing. I'm gregarious. I like talking to people. I like building relationships. I was that guy who I would go into the high school cafeteria Mm -hmm. and I could sit down at any table in the the cafeteria and I had friends at that table. I got you. Didn't matter which. It wasn't like I had my one little click of five friends. And so for me, this was like, this is great. I was like, if I go to chess club, I hang out with this group of friends. Sure. If I go to soccer practice, I'm with this other group of friends. If I, you know, whatever it may be. So I really liked that. I liked being exposed to... Mm Um, different people building relationships with different people, having uh, you know uh, a social life that that touched on different okay. areas of interest, uh-huh. and so that, that that was fun. I loved high school. I actually really loved it. I loved I loved working hard. I mm-hmm. liked you know I liked sort of driving myself to get good grades. Okay. Uh, it what was kind like, of student were you? Like straight what? A. Okay, <laughs> I wish everyone could see his face. He's like, uh, well, no, I'm because I met? I'm not trying to be like that, but yeah, <laughs> you say what. I, I wasn't like that. I wasn't like that in middle school or lower what? school. No, no, that's what I'm saying. High school, it like you like buttoned it up. It, yeah. Oh okay. yeah. You okay. in fourth grade, <laughs> straight. Look, in fourth grade, I, I had long hair. Huh. I, I used to like wear a like a axe earring. I had a cut off sleeve. In fourth grade. Yeah, third, fourth grade. I was. I I got suspended from school in middle school for I, cussing out a gym teacher. For just I cussed him out. Why did I do it? No, well, he told you to run an extra lab, and you were like, so basically, I, he was. <laughs> it was no good reason. It was no good reason. Okay. I was upset, but there okay. was no reason for sure. me to take it out on him. <laughs> and and he knows that, and I've apologized to him. I apologize again. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm not going to put his name out here, but he knows who he is, and I'm sorry. And and I did apologize. It, you know. 
to him in person fuck. before. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you know, I was a kid. So we yeah, all yeah, sure. we all screw up sometimes as yeah, a kid yeah, and we yeah. all need second chances. Definitely. And I was lucky that I got second chances because sure. a lot of folks out there don't get those second exactly. chances. And I knew that. I knew that, that there were people. I had friends whose parents were in my parents' prison who didn't get the same second and third chances sure. I got, who didn't have the same kind of supportive environment in which to make choices about how do they want to how they wanted to apply themselves Mm -hmm. and for me high school kind of came at exactly the right moment like Mm -hmm. i had just really gotten it together enough to where i could focus all of my energy and the emotion that came from having my parents locked up and all the other things in my childhood and really focus that energy into productive outlets Uh. like school like extracurriculars Mm -hmm. um and i also you know was was at a point where like i i had developed enough of the academic skills in mm. middle school to where I was able to be successful when oh, I applied myself. Okay. And it was, in for my generation, maybe it's not now, I think they start counting in like kindergarten, but mm. w- for me it was like high school was when it kind of really started to count. I got you. Like I was in a good high school. Mm-hmm. If I, colleges weren't going to look at my middle school grades. Sure, they sure, weren't sure, going to sure. look at any of that stuff. Right. So I knew freshman year, I was like clean slate. Yep. Start over. Okay. And it's, time it's go, go time. It's go time. Okay. So and that's what I did. Straight A student doing all of the things. You got to your senior year. And what are you what are you thinking? What's what's the plan? What's so I actually, on? just to make it even more complicated, I actually did high school in three years. <clears throat> Why? Well, again, Why I was like, did you feel the need to flex? Because it was like go time. And oh, I, so, gracious sake. So uh-huh. I like did all my requirements to graduate in three years. But uh-huh. my two mothers, uh-huh. bless them, yes. my two mothers kind of teamed up on me, my mom in prison and my mom at home, and they both both said, look. You don't need to be in a rush. Right. You don't need to race off to college. Sure. Like it'll be there. Right. Ain't You've no earned more. this year. Yeah. Do something different with it. Okay. And it was some of the best advice I've ever received. Uh-huh. I spent the first trimester of that year, like until until New Year, I basically spent taking classes at the University of Chicago. Hmm. Um, and I spent the second trimester, like the the what would be like winter quarter, yeah, yeah. Um, in Guatemala, uh-huh. as I talked about earlier, right. like studying abroad, learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. And then I spent the third trimester uh, of that year before graduation uh, with one of my best friends just traveling around Europe and, mm-hmm. and seeing the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Came back, um, graduated, and headed off to Yale. When okay. I applied to college, I you know I really – I think I maybe had my heart set on a, on a fancy school on the East Coast. I don't know why. It was mm-hmm. maybe the high school I went to, the environment. What high school did you go to? University of Chicago Lab School. Oh, you went to the lab school. Yeah. Hold, uh, you ain't. Got, you don't have to tell me this, and this might not make that it because it's none of my business. Who was paying for all this shit? Who was paying for the lab school? Who paid for Yale? Granddad, you had money put away. My grandparents were real, real supportive. Yeah. Okay, okay, they helped me. Right. Yeah, lab my, school my, is fancy. Yeah, my parents couldn't afford. And, no, th- right. no, no, they couldn't. But no. but my mother's job at Northwestern also helped because they they paid, oh, they helped pay for right. college that's right. That's right. as part of like. I got you. Yeah. Okay. So you got to Yale. Did you lose your mind? Tell the truth. I know you're a DA now, so just tell me something where the statute of limitations has run out. <laughs> Were you TPing the dorm, the dean's home? Did you fall asleep on the roof of your dorm? You can give it something mild, but I need a story because I know you lost your mind. Well, there's look, Yale's Yale's a he's so uncomfortable. Right? Yeah, Yale's the kind of place you know. There's a lot of fun activities, a lot of parties. <laughs> you know, there's a lot a lot of uh, uh, you know Kool Aid and. Uh, you know, some, some, some really good hamburgers and the barbecues and, you know, all that. Yep. Okay, I'm not going to get a story. That's cool. Yeah. No, I'm but I did you. see, I can tell you stories about stuff I saw. Sure, okay. You know, okay. I mean, I was studying for my finals, like a good student studying <laughs> in the library. And uh, and a group of students, I think they were called the pundits, came streaking, like naked, full on, oh. like not a stitch of clothing, Ooh, throwing okay. candy at all the students who were studying, hmm. like, you know, just like for fun. Sure. Or like not? across the, what they call the old campus, like students would go streaking across yeah. there sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, people definitely need to let loose. They yeah. have, have ways to do that. Right. And, um, there's and he's not going to tell us naked how he parties. I was, cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was... Okay. I was uh, you were studying. I was studying. <laughs> during definitely the, studying hard. During yep. the nude. Here, anyone who was at Yale during chess, I want you to <laughs> feel free to find me and just, you know... On anonymous background, you can fill in some of those deets for your girl. That's fine. Uh huh. <laughs> I, I I love my time there. It was it was a really that you did. It was a really great time uh, for you know, pe- a lot of amazing people, folks yeah. I'm still friends with, people sure. who've gone on to do you know win awards sure. as war photographers and found Whoa. companies and mm-hmm. become professors that are doing groundbreaking research. Sure, sure, sure. You know, it's 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 an amazing group of people that um, that I got to know there, and um, it it set me on a path that. You know, I loved it so much that I went back for law school to Yale. Huh, huh, huh. Five did years you later. did you know in under by the time you were coming to your 
to the end of your undergraduate uh, career, did you know that you definitely wanted to go to law school, or were you st- like, did, or was it still like? Ah, nah. I, I didn't even take the uh, the LSAT exam until about three years after college. Mm-hmm. So my senior year in huh. college, I, I won a Rhodes Scholarship, and that ah. was going to pay for me to go to Oxford hey. for a couple years. Okay. So I did that. I, got, I earned two master's degrees at Oxford nice. on the Rhodes, uh-huh. and it was during that time that I sort of said. Okay, I want to go to law school. Gotcha. When you got to law school, you're you you said previously when you matriculated, you knew you didn't want to go the white shoe route. But did you? But did you? Was it just like I don't want to go corporate, but I'm open to international law. I'm used to. I'm uh, you know I'm I'm open to criminal law. I'm open to that. Like, how do you think you were thinking about that? I was very open minded about what specific area of law I would I would go into, and I did a lot of work. I would say the two areas that I focused the most on during. My time in law school were immigration and uh, other sort of international law related Uh human rights issues on the one hand and and criminal law on the other. Mm -hmm. And I even did work that combined the two of those. So, for example, I went to Malawi twice Mm -hmm. to do work in the jails and the prisons in Malawi. Uh, That was an example of combining kind of international interest and immigration to a lesser extent. I I went and spent a summer working on the South African Constitutional Court for um, a, for Justice Edwin Cameron, who is an amazing kind of superhero of a person first ever openly gay, openly HIV positive member of government anywhere in Africa. Uh And he was on the courts, uh, the the country's highest court. So got to work for him, learn a ton from him. And I also did a clinic called the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic, Mm -hmm. where we represented individual um, either individual uh, people who'd had their wages stolen from them by an employer mm-hmm. or uh, immigrants who had been caught up in various kinds of illegal government, you know, raids or what, sure. what have you. And, and we advocated on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And I learned a ton about litigation, learned a ton about immigration law, mm-hmm. learned a ton about, um, you know, being on a team fighting for folks who have all the odds stacked against them. Uh. And I also did a lot of research during my time in law school, research and other kinds of projects on criminal justice related things. So I did a project, for example, in law school where we did a a survey of all 50 states Mm -hmm. and we looked at visitation policies in Mm -hmm. prisons. Mm -hmm. And we compared literally all 50 states Mm -hmm. and what what their rules, regulations, and restrictions were Mm -hmm. for prison visits. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of, we published the findings, but we also looked at some specific areas where there were really problematic policies. And then we used our research as a platform for advocacy. Mm-hmm. So just to give you one concrete example, we sure. found out that at that time in the state of Utah, hmm. prison visits had to be conducted in English. Oh, wow. And, and if you didn't speak English, then I, I, according to the terms of the rules, you right. weren't allowed to visit wow. or you weren't allowed to talk on your visit. Wow, wow, wow. And you huh. can see how that might be problematic. Yeah, that's right. What if the incarcerated person or their visitor doesn't speak English? Right. They speak Spanish or they speak Russian or yeah. they speak Chinese, right. whatever it may be, right? right? French, whatever. Yeah. So we worked to get that policy change wow. and we did. Um, uh-huh. There was there was another uh, Department of Corrections policy that prohibited any toys from being brought in the visiting Whoa. room. And you think, well, what if you're a child like, like I was yeah. growing up visiting your parents? Yeah. You're just supposed to sit across a wide table and, right. and do what exactly right. before you can talk, before right. you can express your feelings right, or right. so we, we worked hard to get some of those policies changed uh, um, and that was all work that I started or did while in law school so. the, while you were in law school either in law school or surrounded by rich kids who were losing their mind in undergrad were there any particular um, any particular issues either social or political that were coming into stark relief that were that kind of stick with you or stuck with you like huh this is this isn't right this this is a little off, or this doesn't seem fair or just or la la. la. Like, were Definitely. there any? Yeah, yeah. What, yeah I was really engaged in, in a wide range of, of organizing and activism mm-hmm. in college mm-hmm. and law school. In, mm-hmm. in college, I focused on kind of two main areas, I'd say, but mm-hmm. um, one of them was criminal justice issues. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a lot of organizing with a, a group on campus called Student Legal Action Movement. Mm-hmm. And we did things like try to organize volunteers to um, take take vans that mm-hmm. belonged to Yale that mm-hmm. were available for student activities right. and use those vans and, and get student volunteers to drive people from New Haven uh-huh. up to the state prisons oh, wow. so that people who didn't have access, there's no public transit, sure, sure, could sure. still go visit their loved ones. I see. So we did that kind of thing mm-hmm. in, um, in college. And then also my senior year, as the U.S. was getting ready to invade Iraq yeah. for the second time, yeah. Um, I was really involved in the um, Yale Students for Peace Coalition. Wow, uh-huh. We organized lots of protests. Sure. We organized a train that took people from New Haven, Connecticut, and the surrounding areas down to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and down to New York for big protests, mm-hmm. um, and you know other other kinds of work as well. But those were two areas that I put a lot of time, a lot of energy 
And in law school, you know, I, I was focused on, um, like I talked about already, doing a lot of work on behalf of immigrant communities mm-hmm. in the New Haven area, and mm-hmm. then also policy advocacy around criminal justice issues. Mm, okay. Did you, were you, during this whole time as you were, as you're coming to, as you're coming into your own as a, as an adult, uh, I don't know if you're gonna understand this question because I don't even know if I will say it right. But as this time when you're when you're coming into your own as an adult, did you were you your own person or you were living out an echo or a response to your your parents' history in particular? I was definitely my own person. Yeah. And like all people, I was unburdened by that echo. Well, no. Well, I think I, I think like all people, I was burdened in various ways by sure. what came before me and, sure, sure, and sure. by the circumstances of my life. Yeah. Look, I'm still burdened in the sense that if I huh. want to see my father, yeah, I have to get on an airplane. I have to fly across the country. I don't mean burdened. I don't mean. I, yes, I understand what you're saying, and yes, but I, what I'm what I mean by burden is that you did you at that time or maybe even still now do you do you. In, ah, do you feel like you have to live out your life in a way s- separate from the like physicality of seeing your parents, your biological parents? But did you feel like you had to live out your life in a way that was that responded to that, even though those weren't that wasn't your fault? And I'm not saying that you're. I'm not. You no, know. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I've been someone because my parents were incarcerated when I was 14 months old, because my father's still incarcerated, because my mother served 22 years in prison, because my adoptive mother did 10 months in jail right after I got adopted by her. Uh um, I've I've always appreciated how free I am. Uh It's really meant something to me in a way that, you know, if you haven't had a loved one behind bars, and maybe it's just harder to appreciate what it means to be free. Right. And... So on the one hand, yeah, I've always felt really free and really unburdened, and I've and I've known that that the opportunities available go to Guatemala, go sure. go jump in a in a river and go swimming, you know, in, in a cold river. Right. Things that my my dad would love to do, yeah, can't yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. That's never right. been able to do. That's right. In the last forty years, never been able to do. Right. Um. That's that's made me feel freer. It's also true that I love my parents, yeah. and you know, and I and I want to look after them the way that most people want to look after that's their right. parents if if and when they can and when yeah. they get to a certain age. Right. When my mom got granted parole in 2003, right after I graduated from college, mm-hmm. uh, a family friend kind of sat me down, and we were outside. We were looking up at the stars. It was a beautiful spot, mm-hmm. and and he said to me, "You're free." Mm-hmm. He said to me, mm-hmm. "You're you are free. Yeah. You know, your your mother's coming home. Yeah. Live your life." Huh? And why I, did why did he why did he need to say that to you? He 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 felt the need to say that to me because he'd seen during my college years, uh-huh. especially my senior year, yeah. the amount of energy that I put in to my mom's parole effort yeah, to yeah. try to get her granted parole. Right. And I think he and many others admired it. They, they, you know, who wouldn't want to have a kid that throws sure. himself into supporting you when you're down and right. when you need help. Right. Uh, but he also felt like you've done what you can uh, and now you're free and you should move on. Yeah. I never felt like I, it was an obligation for me. I never sure. felt like I had to do that. I felt like it was the right thing to do and yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah. And in many ways, um, you know, you look at my career, you look at my experience, you look at how I how I ran my my campaign for district attorney in 2019. My life experience, the the perspective, both personal of visiting my parents in prison for for decades, mm-hmm. of my professional experience, five years as a San Francisco public defender, mm-hmm. in the jails, in the courtrooms, mm-hmm. presenting evidence to juries, mm-hmm. advocating for individual people accused of crimes. That life experience, personal and professional, is, is what got me elected. Mm-hmm. It's what set me apart from the other candidates. Mm-hmm. There, there were other candidates who went to fancy schools or who had clerked for federal judges sure. or who, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a recognition, I think, in San Francisco and really across this country that our criminal justice system has, has, has failed us, mm-hmm. that it's excessive and punitive mm-hmm. and it's not rehabilitating people mm-hmm. and it's not actually breaking a cycle of of crime yeah. and of trauma, yeah. that it's destroying communities, especially communities of color, that mm-hmm. it's bankrupting local governments, that it's starving ah. our communities of the precise kinds of investments that we need to be safe mm-hmm. and to prevent crime, like mm-hmm. education and healthcare and housing mm-hmm. um, and, and and job opportunities. Yeah. And that was, that was the campaign I ran on. It was saying, hey, I know from my life that we can do better and mm-hmm. we have to do better if mm-hmm. we want to be safe. And, mm-hmm. and that's... 
the work we're doing every day in this office is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's not a system that wants to change. No. You don't just come in and snap right. your fingers and all right. of a sudden it's compassionate and humane and, right. and efficient and effective. Right. Um, but we are building models and programs little by little, piece mm-hmm. by piece, mm-hmm. that really treat each individual, whether they be a crime victim or someone who we are prosecuting for committing a crime, mm-hmm. uh, with the humanity that they deserve, recognizing that actually those two groups aren't that different. Uh-huh. And that a lot of times the people we prosecute today were victims of crime yesterday. Ooh. And if we do a better job protecting people on the front end, providing them with services, trauma-informed care, mm-hmm. we might prevent tomorrow's crime. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and making sure that that we're also remembering that even when police don't make an arrest, mm-hmm. right? Majority of crime in this country, no arrest is made, That's no right. criminal case gets in filed. In this city, in particular, right? In yeah. this city, you know, it's. And I'm not even saying that as a criticism of the police. That's just. I am. Yeah, you, you <clears> say what you want to say. Yeah. My, my, my point is, most crime doesn't even get reported to police. Yeah, that's and right. we could talk about why that is. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then of the crime that gets reported in San Francisco, about 10% of the reported crimes result in an arrest. Yeah. The other 90% don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to remember that there are victims in those crimes too. And that's we need right. to find ways to support them and help them heal and recover. That's why we started a project in in my first year in office to just simple things to Mm -hmm. have a reimbursement program for small businesses. If their window gets broken or Uh their door gets graffitied, Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that people can keep doing business, keep providing jobs, keep being anchors of our community and our merchant corridors. Mm -hmm. Even if police don't make an arrest, even if my office doesn't have anybody that we can prosecute. Sure. Question before we get to the current moment. And thank you for leading us there. Why San Francisco? Why not Chicago? Why not New York? Why not New Haven? Why not the, the place somewhere where your dad is, you know, in current incarcerated? Why San Francisco? San Francisco's home. I love San Francisco. Really? It's home. You didn't grow up here? My oldest brother was born in San Francisco. All four of my parents lived in San Francisco before I was born. Ah. And my two uncles moved out here, I don't know what, 60s, 70s, never sure. left. Sure. So we spent every summer in Northern ah, California. Okay. Uh, we had a lot of cousins out here, mm-hmm. and it was it was always like one of my three homes. It ah. was like I was born in New York. My parents were incarcerated in New York. Yeah. We moved to Chicago, and I was there for first grade through high school. Yep. And every summer, we'd come out to the, to the West see. Coast. And okay. my middle brother went to UCSD. Uh-huh. When he graduated, he moved straight to San Francisco, never, okay. never left the Bay Area. Ah. So it was always... Part of my, I part part of my home. Okay, all right. Thank. Okay, because I was always wondering, like, why why San Francisco? Now you know. Now. Okay, now, now you know. know. Okay, we're in the current moment now because I'm being robbed of like 18 <laughs> hours to talk to. I could talk to you for three days straight. We'll have to do it again. <clears throat> we will certainly try. But okay, we're in the current moment. You were you were a you were a public defender here for five years. You said okay. Um, and then you ran. Uh, you had a dog fight of a campaign in order to uh, become the DA. Unsurprisingly, that is not without its complications and you are the target. We are in recall season here in fucking sunny California and you are one of the unfortunate victims of that. Tell, tell, say in your own words, because I think there are two things at play right now and you can correct me if I have this wrong. I think there are two things at play right now. I think that there are, uh, I think that there is, People with deep pockets who do not like your stance, particularly against gig uh, companies because of, you know, the labor and wage theft issues there. Um, And I think that these people with the deep pockets who, you know, have money on the line are able to, on the other hand, exploit uh, the fears and concerns that, you know, non-super rich people have in the city about, quote unquote, crime. So talk to me about the former, and then we'll get to the latter. Well, yeah, let me set the stage. So as you said, I won a tough race in 2019, Mm -hmm. took office in January of 2020. Two months later, the COVID pandemic shut down the whole world. And we had to basically reinvent how we do justice. Mm -hmm. We had to start doing it remotely, electronically. We had to figure out, you know, how do we move cases forward when the courts are basically closed? A lot of difficult decisions, a lot of new challenges around people in the jail, people in the courthouse getting exposed to... Um, to COVID nineteen, so you know we face unprecedented challenges, That's things right. we never could have predicted That's or right. anticipated. That's right. And you know, in the midst of all that, of course, there were also changes in crime trends. Mm-hmm. We saw a historic decline in overall reported That's crime, right. about a twenty percent drop in my first year in office. Mm-hmm. We also saw a, a kind of a dislocation or reallocation of certain kinds of crime. Right. So when tourists stopped coming to the city, mm-hmm. when bars and nightclubs and and, and stores closed, mm-hmm. we we saw people who earn their living committing crimes mm-hmm. like shoplifting or car break-ins mm-hmm. start committing other kinds of crimes. Right. Like, and maybe, and I'm, I'm, I understand what you're saying, but 
maybe survive by committing certain crimes, not because er, er, that makes it seem like, some, you know, like, some oh, of I have a 401k because of, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no, some of I, both. But I understand what you're saying. Go De- definitely a lot of people uh, committing, look, this is one of the cities in the world that has the highest income inequality, the highest wealth inequality in the Bay and Area. that is a crime. <laughs> you know, that's it's a reality that yeah. we we can't ignore when we're thinking about public safety and, and, pri- and private property. That's what people miss. You know, yes. it's like we, 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 we have tremendous wealth. Yes. We're an international tourist destination. We have people who come here from all over the world That's right. and who leave backpacks with electronics yes. or cash yes. or, you know, clothing that they just bought from high-end, you know, stores. designer stores yeah. visible on the backseat of their car. Yeah. And we have other people who literally don't know how they're going to pay rent, live That's on right. the streets, right. don't hand have access mouth. to, to right. right, hand to mouth. So some of that is, you know, is is a consequence of the kind of inequality that we have in this in That's this era. exactly correct. And, and you also have um, folks who at a higher end of the criminal spectrum are taking advantage of that and creating a marketplace for buying stolen goods. That's right. And shipping them all over the world. And, but you know, both things are true. Some of those folks are making a lot of money off of sure. the stolen goods market, yeah. right? And they're exploiting the the wealth inequality yeah. and the desperation and, yeah. the, and the sort of willingness of folks on the front lines yeah. to take real risk yeah. um, of getting caught and getting punished and, and all the rest um, to, you know, to buy and sell stolen goods. Some of them are doing it right here, you know, on Amazon or in secondhand right. clothes stores yeah. or whatever else. Yeah. So, you know, that, 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 Pandemic, the, the global pandemic really shifted a lot of crime away from things that target tourists yep. or tar- target you know uh, uh, retailers to, for example, garages. That's right. And garages are close to home. That's right. Garages are that's a residential burglary. Yeah, that's, that's somebody right. coming into your house. Yeah. That's sca- that's really scary. That's it's right. not just that you're a victim of a crime and somebody steals something from you. That's it feels bad like enough. A violation. It's a violation. That's right. And people feel very unsafe about that. And that's right. Even though overall crime fell, burglaries. In, during the pandemic, increased. That's right. And and so there was a lot of folks who, um, because of that, were were scared. Yes. And there was a lot of folks like the police unions and Republican Party operatives that were trying to exploit that That's fear. That's right. And any high-profile crime or tragedy right. to undermine criminal justice reform, to undermine policies aimed That's at right. racial equity, mm-hmm. at redistribution of resources, at treatment, at care, not combating cages. the wage theft issue for for gig economy workers, which I think is really what is the craw in their claw. What is that phrase, craw in their, something in their craw? Anyway, I know what you're talking about, but I'm not gonna. No, I'm just gonna leave right where you left it. I'm good. Yeah, so, I know what so you mean. I feel you. Yeah, yeah, like um, a like a whatever, a thorn yeah. in their side. Yeah, that's okay. what's a lot of this. You're absolutely yeah. right, though, because what we did, I promised. Look, I promised voters in 2019 mm-hmm. that I would create a worker protection unit. That explain it. So park right there. So traditionally, district attorneys' offices. Um, will wait for police to bring them cases yep. and they'll prosecute whatever the police bring them. Yep. So police are focused on street level crime. That's right. Some, you know, usually black and brown young men. Yes. Um, usually people who don't have access to lots of resources or, 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 or you know, access to the halls of power, so That's to speak. Right. Those are the folks who get arrested. Those are the folks who get prosecuted. That's right. There are lots of laws that go unenforced, That's including criminal laws, including civil hello. enforcement laws. And so one of the things I said is, hey, if we're serious about public safety, that means we need to stick up for the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We can't only prosecute that case where there's one victim. That's we'll, right. we'll prosecute that case. But we also need to think proactively about those cases where there might be 10 or 100,000 victims. That's right. And those victims are workers. People hello. on the front lines who are vulnerable. Yep. People who, if they don't get the protections that the law entitles them to, yeah. whether it be minimum wage, whether it be unemployment insurance, whether it be health care, PPE, yeah. they might get sick and die That's during right. a pandemic. They might end up on the streets That's right. and then commit a crime of desperation, right. what have you. We need to figure out ways to to protect the folks who are most vulnerable. And yep. that's how we build safety for everyone. Ah. Our worker protection unit did just that. Huh. Um, and our opening our opening action, our opening case uh, was uh, against DoorDash. And mm. we filed another one against Handy. These are gig economy companies right. where they're, really their entire business model mm-hmm. is built on um, classifying their employees mm-hmm. as independent contractors. That's right. And by doing that, they create three groups of victims in the process. The mm-hmm. first, most obvious one is the employees. That's people right. who are not being treated as employees, they're being treated as independent contractors right. so they don't get minimum wage, That's so right. they don't get PPE, so they don't get health insurance, so benefits, that these companies yeah. don't need to benefit or even pay into the state. Yeah. And this is where we get the second group of victims. Mm-hmm. All the taxpayers suffer because ah. companies that have employees are supposed to pay into the state Ooh. unemployment fund, mm. the, sto- the state uh, workers' compensation fund. That's right. And these companies aren't doing that. That's right. And as a result, when someone gets hurt on the job mm-hmm. or has to file for unemployment, which we know happened in record numbers yeah. in the last year, yeah. 
the state's running out of money. That's right. Taxpayers get stuck with the bill because the right. companies weren't paying in that's their right. fair share. That's right. The third group that suffers is other companies that are playing by the rules. That's right. Because they, how can you compete with someone Hello. who's not paying minimum wage? That's right. So we said, wait a second. No, not on our watch. Yeah. This is illegal. And we filed a lawsuit and they didn't like it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as a result, we see... Um, Tremendous amounts of pushback from the 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 you know the elite investor mm -hmm. class, the venture That's capital right. class, That's right. who um, are astroturfing the who are trying to astroturf the shit out of you, and I have to glower at these people every week at the farmers market. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Well, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and and my thing is just you know I really wish that we could have a good faith argument about the facts, sure, instead of so much misinformation, disinformation, sure. manipulation, That's right. That's right. and that's really what they're doing. They they are even in an era where crime is down, yes. even in an era where San Francisco and among big cities, right. San Francisco is is faring much better in terms of quote crime that's again right. uh, than than that's you right. know uh, other cities of this size and larger. So, yeah, and, yeah, and look, I get it. If you're if you've been a victim of crime in the last year, statistics don't mean squat. That's right. You you've suffered. You've been harmed. That's someone right. you know has been harmed. That's right. You don't care what the data shows. Right. You were harmed, yeah. and we as a city need to be there to support you. That's right. And we need to do a better job always of reducing violence, of reducing gun violence in particular, of That's reducing right. the kind of um, you know problems that small businesses have staying open, that what have you. We need to do better to 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 make this a city that's livable, that's workable, right. that's employable. And there's always room for improvement. Yeah. We also need to be realistic about what we're comparing ourselves to. That's right. And we can look historically at San Francisco. You can see that our murder rate, for example, is uh, at its five-year low average yep. that it's been at really in the last 56 years. That's right. We're, we're at the five-year rolling average yep. for the lowest it's been at any point in the last 50 years. Uh, we're on pace this year for the same uh, homicide rate as we had last year. Mm -hmm. Other cities across the Bay and across the country have seen skyrockets. That's right. Now- Every murder is one too many. Every homicide yeah. is one of too course. many. There's no statistics don't capture the loss to to a family to, right. to 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 a mother whose son has to get buried. Right. There's no way we can undo that harm when that's it happened, right. and that's why we need to be more proactive about preventing it. Um, about preventing it, not just responding to it with yep. the kind of punitive measures that the criminal justice system is so good at meeting out. Yeah. Um, but you look at the way these folks talk about me or my office, and you know, you would think that you Sam would think that it is the purge in this bitch, and it's absolutely not. This is a very safe city. Like, That's right. come on. Okay, I know you have to go. One last question for, and I don't know which term you prefer, leftist or progressive, but for for people who are probably of your same ideological and political bent. Why is uh, the law or the legal realm, why is that worthy of, uh, uh, you know, leftist or progressive um, energy, focus, attention? Like, how does being in this arena, how does this help us create the future we want to inhabit? I think there's at least two different ways I could answer that. One would be to really focus on the criminal legal system in particular. But mm -hmm. let me let me take a broader view mm -hmm. of, of answering your question and just think about the law as a tool for social change, the law as a as a structure that is worthy of engagement and 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 as you said, a sort of a field to do battle on yes. um, for folks who who have progressive values or you know reform minded yeah. um, uh, political outlooks. I, I think you know if you go far enough to the left or the right, frankly, there's a real sense of contempt for government, mm -hmm. and there's. Lots of you know we can understand where that comes from yeah, historically. You can absolutely. look at you know the, the the tendencies and the traditions that lead to that, and I think in any culture in any political movement, there's room for lots of different opinions sure. and, and viewpoints and and strategies. Yeah. Um, but I think at at the end of the day, if you if you want to build a better system, if you want to build a society that is more equitable, more inclusive, yeah. um, that's more reflective of the values that we all share, mm -hmm. you have to figure out ways to do that work in the long term. You have to build structures that mm -hmm. support it, that reflect those values. Yep. And government and law are how we do that. Hmm. And so I think, you know, as much as we have legitimate criticisms of government, as much as we need people on the outside to constantly hold government accountable That's and right. to be critical and to to be suspicious and yeah. to be dubious. And as my great uncle, the journalist I.F. Stone used to say, ah! all governments lie. Yeah. You know? I.F. Stone is your great uncle? Yeah. Holy yeah. fuck. I didn't know that. Okay. Go ahead. So uh -huh. um, that's... You know, that, that, that's a reality that is going to require there always to be mobilized community groups yep. and activist circles and, you know, holding government accountable. Yep. It's also true that 
no matter how hard we work, no yep. matter what we're able to accomplish in our generation, no matter what you believe in in terms of you know social change or revolution or uh, electoral outcomes, mm -hmm. at, at the end of the day, it's going to be short-lived if you don't build structures that mm -hmm. can last. And mm -hmm. the U.S. Constitution, for all of its flaws, yeah. that's, that is a legal framework yeah. for governing an entire country that mm -hmm. has lasted for centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying there's no room for credit. Sure, there sure, is a sure, lot. Sure, Look, sure. it wrote slavery, two-thirds of a human yeah, being. We don't need to go any right. further than that. That's right. and, and we could go a lot further. There yeah, are yeah. serious problems with it. And yet, as a as a structure mm -hmm. for governance, mm -hmm. it has somehow withstood the ages. Mm -hmm. That's where the law comes in. The sure. law comes in because we need to figure out not just how to solve the problem that's right in front of us, yeah. but the one we can't always predict that ah. may be here in five years or 10 years or 100 years. Ah, I see. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Um, what do you want to leave us with since I am being uh, unfairly put no, I'm just I'm being dramatic. How <laughs> what do you wanna what do you wanna leave us with or what should people be thinking about or um considering, weighing, like what what do you wanna leave us with? Well, first of all I wanna thank you, Janelle, for for coming to talk yeah, with me and for, for helping to dig into difficult topics sure, and difficult sure, sure. conversations. We all need to uh, remember to be more complicated, more nuanced, That's right. and to and more scrupulous fall. in exactly. our in our pursuit of what what could be true. That's it, right. Yeah, yeah. Because uh -huh. there, we, you know, there's a culture out there. There's a sort of a soundbite culture. There's a a, a Twitter dunk culture. <laughs> right. That you know, as fun as it can be, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really doesn't help advance the conversation. That's right. And these are hard issues. Sure. So figuring out how to solve the the failings of hundreds of years of of mass incarceration mm -hmm. and racial bias amplified through incarceration and behavioral health problems getting dumped on jails that's instead right. of hospitals, that's not going to happen overnight. That's and right. it's not going to happen on Twitter either. So no, no, no. We, we need to figure out ways to have deep, real conversation, mm -hmm. to be honest with each other, yeah. to be patient, even as we uh, know that the issues we're dealing with require a tremendous sense of urgency. Sure. And so I want to leave you with just a, a sense of optimism. You know, I wake up every day, I'm so humbled to be able to serve the people of San Francisco, sure. to know that the voters in this city um, you know, had had the trust in me yeah. and in my vision. I was real clear about what we were going to do. We That's were right. going to build a safer community mm -hmm. through equal enforcement of the law, including right. against police and corporations. That's right. We were going to focus on healing victims, not just using them as pieces of evidence. That's right. And we were going to focus on building safer communities without relying on jails and prisons to do it. And, and we're getting that work done. That's right. Um, and I really just want people to help us continue to do it, build those solutions in the community, That's right. find ways to support us so that we can go the distance That's on right. these policies, have time for them to yield the results that we know they will over time. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, mm -hmm. don't, don't believe the lies and the fear mongers and let's, let's stay no. focused on the positivity and the fact that San Francisco is a phenomenal city to live in. It's and a, it's safe. And it's safe, you know, <laughs> it's safe. And just as importantly as it is, is, as it is a fact that it is safe interpersonally, it is a, it is a safe place for worker. Ah, people are gonna drag me for that. It is safe for workers, um, in the sense that there are people in the case, you chief among them, to make sure that workers' rights are enforced, um, and that the corporations that would love to just, you know, run roughshod over, you know, you know, or over workers uh, via hyper exploitation, hyper exploitation, um, are held to account so that that is not. Um, so that is not done so easily. So that protects workers, as you said, as well as taxpayers of the state of California. And that is a part of the conversation that I don't think is amplified enough that should be focused on just as much as, you know, people's people being upset about the car getting broken in or the garage. Those are those are important, too. But let's let's balance this and let's understand this in the context of the fact that we are living through a depression right now. <laughs> like and, you know, desperate people do do things out of desperation. But on the whole, are you safe to walk down the street? Absolutely. Are you safe to, you know, visit your friends, walk your dog, sit out for a, you know, warm beer in the evening? Yes. <laughs> that hasn't and, changed. And we're implementing historic policies that That's are right. going to really broaden the way that district attorneys do justice and That's build right. public safety. And, you know, it's a, it's an amazing moment in American history to, to have people from coast to coast recognize that we can be safer if we invest in health care. Listen, right? <laughs> say it Drug again. Drug treatment, right? <laughs> Behavioral health. Those That's are right. the things that, that we really need to be investing in. And as we shift resources away from punishment and towards holding people accountable in ways to get at the root causes of crime, That's right. we're going to be healthier, we're going to be happier, and we're going to be living in a much more humane community and society. That's what this is about. And I really just appreciate the opportunity to share some of my history, some of my vision, and some of the challenges that we're facing as, you know, look, I'm going to leave you with this last thought. Mm -hmm. President Trump left this country with the virus. And I'm not just talking about the COVID virus. Yeah, that's right. I'm also talking about this virus of refusing to accept the outcome of free and fair elections. Ooh. 
thirty some percent of the country doesn't believe that Trump lost. Well, he yeah. lost. Let me let me just clear this up for you. He lost. <laughs> That's right. In he case lost you're confused. Bad. That's right. Yeah, like some I think seven million more votes for Biden than for Trump. It, yes, it was millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More it, than right. more than the last time. Yes. Yeah, he got beat bad. That's right. He lost. Now. You see it not just with Republicans at the national level, but in a state like California, from the governor mm -hmm. all the way on down to mm -hmm. local races. That's right. There's more than 60 different recall attempts underway. These are not because people committed some high crime or misdemeanor right. in office because there's some political scandal. Yeah. This is because the folks that lost the election yeah. have sour grapes That's right. and want to redo it before the four years are up. That's right. We've got to fight back. That's right. And we you can fight at the ballot. Yeah, that's right. And fight at the ballot box. If you if you if you really can't stand, you know, your electeds, run someone when it's time and take them to task and win fair and square. You don't have to try and like, you know, sneak somebody uh, in an off year. midterm. That's right. Before they're even halfway through their that's term. That's exactly right. So, let's let's. So we're gonna go the here. distance. And I appreciate it. the opportunity to talk to you about that's it. Right. Thanks to everybody for listening, and uh, we'll have to continue the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jess. I Thanks, appreciate you know. it. Hell surprise! This is one huge astroturfing attempt by billionaire tech investors and the police union. I'm rolling my eyes. Anyway, for more info about the accomplishments of Chessa's office so far, please visit standwithchessa.com. I'll put the URL in the show notes. Okie dokes, uh, this week on the Patreon will be another brief interview with a California elected, Assemblymember Alex Lee. Head on over to patreon.com slash what's left to do. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash what's left to do to hear how the openly socialist assembly member sometimes tricks big pharma lobbyists into agreeing with Karl Marx. <laughs> Pretty hilarious. Okay, see you over on Patreon.